Well, those are amazing words, and I hope you listened to them, read them closely, and I also hope that you were able to sing them from the depths of your heart. This morning, we're going to be opening up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19. And if you want to, there's an outline that you can follow in your bulletin. Asking the question, am I willing to die for the Lord, is an important question for us to ask. Today our focus is going to be persecution. And look at the size of these books. This right here is the Fox's Book of Martyrs, AD 33 to today. And then this right here is focused specifically on China. This is China Book of Martyrs. And I love the fact that it's called Volume 1. Because until the Lord comes back, we're going to continue to write stories of what God's people are willing to sacrifice for the proclamation of the gospel. In China alone, 250,000 people have been martyred for Christ. Since 1900, there have been more martyrs in China than in all the countries of the world. And stats abound on this. So it's interesting, you get on the website and you try to find out about martyrs and you can find stats that are all over the place. 43 million total martyrs, 50% of those in the last 100 years, over 300 killed each day. You can go to another website, 1 million martyrs in the last 10 years or 100,000 a year average or one every five minutes. You go to another website, monthly, 322 martyred. It just goes on and on. The two sites that I think are really the most reputable, one would be Open Doors. And what they cite is that there are 1,200 martyrs in 2012. That's 180 martyred each month. And that there are 100 million people worldwide who face some type of persecution. In Iraq alone, the number of Christians has dropped from 1 million to 275,000 in the last 12 years. In other words, Christianity could disappear at that particular rate. The other site that I think is reputable is the Voice of the Martyrs. And they, on their site, they do not claim that they calculate the number of persecuted. They simply want to encourage people to stand with those who are persecuted. And they say this, the reality is we'll never know the full extent of suffering. Today on the patio, we want to make you more aware of what is going on in the world. And so perhaps when you came in, you saw the table set up. Maybe you came in from this direction. If you exit out this direction, we have resources out there available for you. Bookmarks like this that you can put in your Bible, 10 ways to pray for the persecuted church. We've got identified by nations where you can stop by and read specific prayer requests and actually pray for people. And that's what we invite you to do. Not just look, but actually pray and engage with the people of the world, believers who are suffering persecution for Christ. We have a lot of special people here. She has actually been working with one of the most persecuted, um, persecuting groups, the Boko Haram in Nigeria. She's been helping Christians escape from there as well as Christians escaping from Pakistan. And there are a lot of relief workers out there who are working hard to make sure that the gospel continues to get proclaimed in, for the safety of believers. Tonight also we invite you for a time of prayer. We'll have prayer stations and as Walt said, a simulated uh, worship service as well. Around the world, people are not able to freely worship like this. 
And so it's very important for us to understand a little bit more about what their experience is. There's an incredible team who has put some of this together in helping plan the patio as well as helping plan tonight. And I'm so grateful for each one of them. And then Ruben from La Gracia also created us a world map so that we could see especially the 1040 window where there's so much more persecution that takes place there than in other parts of the world. So avail yourselves of all these opportunities and come back tonight. But there's a lot going on today in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 is where we are going to be. We just sang that song. It's a incredible song. I actually found that song in this book right here about martyrdom. And it shares about how the underground churches there actually sing that song. That's an incredible song to put words to, especially when you're in an environment where that might happen. And they sing that joyfully in that context. I think it's important for all of us to consider this question. Am I willing to suffer persecution, even die for the sake of Jesus? I think we all ought to ask ourselves that question. And the reason I think it's important is because when you think about what's going on in our world today, and perhaps many of you saw this image, maybe you watched the video, I don't know how long ago it was, a few months, a year ago, with what's going on in our world, which is becoming more anti-Christ, we could very well face such persecution. But I think it's, it's really important for us to think about this question because the more important point is the fact that thinking about whether or not you would dare to die for Christ will help you think about whether or not you will dare to live for Christ as you should. In other words, a true follower of Christ must be able to say, I will not renounce Christ even if it costs me my life. A true follower of Jesus puts hands to the plow and does not look back. A true follower of Christ takes up his cross and follows Christ wherever that might lead. But as soon as we say that, it causes us to consider what we truly treasure in this world. Now think about this for a moment. Imagine saying, Lord, I will die for you, but I I just can't find the time to sit and read my Bible on a daily basis. Lord, I will die for you, but my life is so busy that I don't have time to commune with you in prayer. Lord, I will die for you. I just can't muster up enough boldness to talk to my coworker at work about Jesus. Lord, I will die for you, but I really can't give to supporting your cause, the work in this church and around the world because I have so many other expenses. You see, to say I'm willing to die for Christ and yet that not connect with our everyday reality doesn't make much sense. And so asking that question about whether we're to dare to die for Christ forces us to think about whether we're willing to dare to live for Christ. And so one of the best ways to bring Christ-honoring changes into our life is to measure the way we live now by our willingness to die for Jesus. So hopefully your Bibles are open to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Let's look through this passage and let me read this passage and then we'll consider all the things that the Lord might want to teach us from this passage. Verse 12. 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And Peter wrote these words long ago to encourage believers who loved you deeply and who were facing tragic consequences of that love. And Lord, we are gathered here today and we've opened up your word. And now we ask that you would make it alive and powerful for our lives. Lord, we pray that your word would move its way into our hearts and we would leave here today changed. Lord, we pray our love for you would grow. And so, God, we invite your presence here today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move in our midst. And Jesus, would you be glorified by all that is said. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a few points that I want to make as we work our way through this passage, but I want us to think about the flow of the passage for just a moment. Faithful living leading to suffering persecution. So faithful living is what Peter's been exhorting the believers toward throughout this book. Remember your identity. You're in Christ. Remember that future hope. Live in light of that. But as they've been living faithful, standing for the cause of Christ, it's been leading to suffering persecution, which requires some exhortation. So Peter is this, is this fatherly figure is going to move into their life and he's going to offer them ex exhortation, and it's all based on a certain hope. And so we want to use that as our model as we work our way through this passage. And so we want to begin with this aspect of suffering persecution. That's where Peter is landing when he gets to this particular passage right here. That's his focus. And so in your bulletin, you can see point number one is the situation. What are these believers facing what, what is the context that they're up against? Well, very simply, looking at our passage, they are suffering persecution. In verse 12, we see the fiery trial. And this word, think furnace, a refining of metals to get rid of all the impurities. That's the imagery here. They are underneath that kind of pressure, that kind of fiery trial. It goes on in the same verse and talks about the test that they are up against. In verse 13, they are sharing in Christ's suffering. In verse 14, being insulted for the name of Christ. And then in verse 16, suffering as a Christian. Verse 17 even brings in the aspect of judgment. So we need to understand, well, well what, what does that look like? What's that mean for the believers? And then we work our way on down in verse 19, suffer according to the will of God. And so persecution, 
Suffering is what they are obviously up against. And there are two aspects to this suffering that I think we find in this passage that I want us to understand as we work our way through it this morning. First aspect is an anti-Christ world against Christ, opposing Christ world is persecuting them because they stand for Christ, the life that they live. Persecution and death, we went through the book of Hebrews a few years back. Same concept. They were up against the loss of property and imprisonment, those kinds of things, simply because they are Christians. I mean, look at those verses again, just pulling those same concepts of suffering. It's not just any old suffering. It's sharing Christ's suffering. It's not just any insulting. It's insulted for the name of Christ. It's suffering as a Christian. And so we can pull all these principles out of the passage. And there's a lot of um, consequences to their standing firm in Christ. Um, the Apostle Paul here being beheaded and the Apostle Peter who actually wrote this letter being crucified upside down. You see, the persecution of Nero is on the rise in this particular time period. And so many people are suffering as a result of that. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, it talks about, in the same way the song we just sang talks about all the disciples, the apostles dying for their faith. It's interesting, again, trying to exactly set forth accurate information. Sean McDowell, who's at Biola um, for the older generation, son of Josh McDowell, he just wrote a book recently called The Fate of the Apostles. And he actually tries to walk into some of the traditions that are there. And, and he, the bottom line of his book is really only about five of the apostles, you can say with absolute certainty, they were martyred for their faith. But again, the bottom line is persecution exists. And so you, you get all of this happen. We know for, for, with, with, with a lot of certainty what happened with Paul, what happened with Peter. People are being persecuted. Listen to this account by a Roman historian of the time, Tacitus, in his book Annals. He says this, Therefore, to stop the rumor that he had set Rome on fire, he, Emperor Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures, the persons commonly called Christians, so Christians became the scapegoat here, who were generally hated for their enormities. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport, like a circus event, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and then worried to death by dogs. So by having these skins of wild beasts on, these dogs would just be attacking them and, or nailed to crosses or set fire to. And when the day waned or was just about over, they were burned to serve for the evening lights. And so there's a lot that's taking place in this time that we can actually read about historically. That's the context where we find ourselves today, an antichrist world persecuting those who want to stand for Christ. But there's more than that as well. As we think about the, just the history of the church, this persecution continues to go on. Where are you two? I, I didn't even got to greet you yet. Right there. So good to have you guys here. They live in an environment where they, they see the consequences of what it means to name the name of Christ. I, I, I need to talk because I need to share information with him that's dangerous to share over email for fear of what might happen to a believer. I mean, this happens around the world. It's an antichrist world. But there's a second reason for, or a second aspect to their suffering here, this is also the testing of God. And so we've got this 
pictured down here where we see these awful things that are happening to people, but we must never lose sight of the fact that there's this bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. And so Peter reminds us about this coming upon you to test you. In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he's already made reference to this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a testing that's going on for the church here. And so when you think about it's a suffering according to God's will is what verse 19 says. It's not as if God has lost his grip. It's not as if God was on his throne and all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, I lost that one. Oh, poor people, look what happened to them. God is at work here. And what he is doing in this world, he always works together for good to those who love him. It's a refining that is taking place in these people's lives. You see, when you look at pictures like this again, they cannot be explained apart from a greater work that God is doing. We would only be left with, why God? Why would you allow that if we didn't recognize that God is on his throne and he has absolute knowledge absolute wisdom, absolute understanding, knows the end from the beginning, and he's at work accomplishing everything that's going to be for his glory. We have to trust that. And so as we think about what's going on in this passage, these kind of pictures can draw this home for us. What is happening is there is a judgment of destruction, a judgment of condemnation that is going out throughout the world. Peter has this big picture focused throughout his book he's talking about what's going on here in light of this greater work that God is doing everything is going towards this day he makes reference to things like people who obey and what happens to them people who disobey and what happens to them this coming judgment everyone gives an account Peter has that as his focus but as God breaks through this world what is happening to the believers here is not a judgment of condemnation there is therefore Romans 8 1 says now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a movement of God in this world. And for those who oppose God, it could be their condemnation. But for those who follow God, it is for their purification. This testing is one, then, that proves who truly belongs to Christ. They obey they persevere. They put their hands to the plow. They do not look back. They take up their cross and they follow right behind Jesus regardless of the cost. It also refines the faith of, faith of those who truly belong to Christ. They are refined. They are strengthened. Anywhere in the world where there is persecution going on, there are tears. But there's also the, the, the truth that the church is being strengthened. There's no imposters in the church in persecuted countries. No one just pretending to be. No one playing the game of showing up at church. There's a strong church, people who love Jesus, people who are willing to die. And that's why there's so many people around the world who are getting saved. Peter wants to make it clear, God's judgment is moving through the earth. And when that fire of judgment burns, those who do not belong to Christ could be destroyed or their hearts will be awakened. Those who do belong to Christ, it is a refining of whatever's going on in their life. Peter is not saying, come on, 
Try harder. Hang in there. Try harder. What Peter's saying is, be who you are. You are followers of Christ. You are new creatures. Just be who you are. And so Peter comes to this part of the book and they're, they're suffering all this persecution. And this is where, again, we see his, his fatherly heart come in, his pastoral heart, because all of this that they're up against requires some kind of exhortation. And so here's the second time in the book where Peter says, beloved, I got to have the other beloved passage for some reason. Chapter 2, verse 11, beloved. I mean, you see the pastoral heart moving toward these people who are up against such injustices in the world, and he's going to exhort them. And so the second point in your outline is the exhortation. What are these believers called to do? And that's the focus of these verses. Persecution, assumed. And now Peter wants to set out some exhortation to them. And there are at least five points, and we've got a lot of ground we want to cover in the time that we have remaining. And so I'm going to move through some of these points fairly quick, quickly. But his first exhortation is in verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Listen, just don't be surprised by this. Anyone who chooses to follow Jesus and live righteously will experience suffering and persecution. The teaching of Jesus is really clear. You can write down Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Luke 9, 18 through 27. In that passage, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And they say, you are the Christ. They're thinking kingdom. They're thinking throne. They're thinking God conquering the evil of this world. And Jesus says, I want you to know the Christ is going to go to the cross and he's going to die. And then he says to them, and I'm going to ask you to take up your cross and follow me as well. Jesus made it clear in other passages. They hated me. They're going to hate you. All who are willing to live godly will suffer persecution is the constant teaching of the Bible. In living in a post-Christian, anti-Christ world, culture that we live in, persecution should not be surprising. In fact, you can see from the title of our message that perhaps the fact that we don't experience persecution ought to be what really catches our attention. But he says, don't be surprised. He also says, rejoice. And my mind went back to Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Remember the spread of the gospel. And as a result of the spread of the gospel, they are under some persecution. They're brought before the council. And when they leave, they rejoiced that they were able to suffer. For the name of Jesus. And Peter gives this exhortation. Rejoice. John Piper says it this way. The mark of a Christian is that he experiences deeper and greater joy in being dishonored with Christ than he does in being honored by men. And oftentimes our desire in life can be honored by men to keep things safe, to keep things nice. And then at that point, we may be dishonoring Christ. The greatest mark of a Christian is this deeper and greater joy. And so he says, rejoice. But how does one rejoice? And again, I just want to pull out some quick points from this passage that talk about how one rejoices. Again, verse 12, 
Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Their suffering is not random. Again, God has not lost control of this. It's part of a bigger picture of what God is doing in this world. It's according to the will of God. And they've got to keep that in their mind. God is at work. He's graciously purifying is what we see in verses 17 and 18. The righteous are scarcely saved, but they're saved. He's purifying them. He's got a home for them. He's doing a work in them. All of this, verse 19, is according to the will of God in their lives. And so how can they rejoice? It's not random. God is doing something. They may not understand it. They may not appreciate it. It may cause pain, but it's not random. They can live in light of that. A second reason is that their suffering is a clear demonstration that one is in Christ. Any suffering that they are going through for the name of Christ is with Christ, and it's for Christ. Joseph Son, a Romanian pastor who has experienced persecution, he stood against repressions of Christianity, and this is what he wrote. This union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I'm not a lone fighter here. I am an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It's not my suffering. And listen to this. I only had the honor to share his sufferings. That's a reason to suffer. It's with Christ. The one who went before us and died on the cross, we take up our cross and we follow. A third reason is their suffering is seed for future and greater rejoicing. This has been a theme in Peter's book or Peter's letter, chapter 1, verse 11. Inquiring what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Chapter 5, verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory of that is to be revealed. This is seed. And there's a glory that is out there. Even when you think about the book of Revelation, the martyrs rise up from around the throne and say, how long? Looking forward to that day of the glory being revealed. And then point number four, reasons to rejoice. We also see there, when one suffers, they are blessed. And why is it? Verse 14 makes it so clear for us. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There's this presence that is there. When Paul was asking the Lord to take away a thorn in his flesh, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. In your time of need, I will be there with you. We're going to say more about that in just a little bit. But God's Spirit rests on them. And they have strength they never thought possible. They have resolve they never thought possible. But back to our um, major points that we're making here about the exhortation. The third exhortation is let none of you suffer as an evildoer or meddler. And he gives a, a list of items there. If we suffer, it should be because of evil. It should not be because of evil, but rather, like we see in verse 19, while doing good. Entrust yourself to the faithful creator and doing good. But not, it should not be as evil. We should be discerning about what's going on. And in fact, in my investigation of different aspects of persecution that you find on the web, 
There's a lot of things that are put out there. Um, This is a Christian NHS employee, and she says this, I believe the NHS singled me out for discipline because Christianity is so disrespected. Well, is that true? We, We might find ourselves saying, oh, the world just hates Christians. That's not fair. But actually on the blog, someone said, you ought to go back and read the the, the, the record of the trial. And so I actually went through and read the record of the trial and just tried to pull out some of the summary here. But at the end of the day, she even herself admitted that she had gone against company policy and she had actually been encouraged to follow that policy several times before. She continued to go against that. That's evil doing. She brought this on herself. And so we've got to be careful how we understand suffering. Peter says, don't suffer as an evildoer. Why does he say that? Because it's possible to suffer as an evildoer. And that's what was going on in this particular situation. And let's don't call that suffering for Christ. Let's call that evildoing for what it is. Let's be above reproach in the way that we live in this world. And so there's a lot of stuff out on the web that can be confusing for us. But then we see... Point number four, verse 16. Let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name or Christ's name. And so this whole idea of when they're suffering, don't be ashamed of that. You are standing for Christ. You are are walking behind the one who went before you. There is no shame in that. There's only rejoicing. There is only glorifying in all of that because ultimately when a person finds themselves in that place of suffering, they're willing to stand firm. What they're pointing to is Christ is the greatest treasure of life. That there's nothing greater to live for. There's nothing greater to yield their life to than Christ himself. He is all and he is above all and he is in all. And they lay that down. Peter says, don't you be ashamed of that. If Christ is your treasure, causing you to live in a way that honors his name, don't be ashamed. You rejoice. You glorify him. And then he gives one more exhortation. He says in verse 19, entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. And this echoes Jesus' earlier words in chapter 2 and verse 23 entrusting his soul to the creator. It also goes back to Luke 23 on the cross. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. It's good bedrock theology that we have being laid out for us. In the midst of suffering, we give ourselves to God. God, this is your problem. This is your stuff. What's our stuff? Doing good. Lord, I'm living for you and I'm up against persecution. This is your stuff. I give it to you. As Romans 12 says, you leave room for the wrath of God. And you continue to do what is right. Continue to do good in the midst of it all. Doing good in the face of persecution. One's trust in God removes any obstacles for loving the other, even the persecutor. And it it removes any incentives for revenge. God, this is your stuff. You take care of it. And you want to know what? God's going to do a whole lot better job taking care of that than we ever will. So we give that to him while we continue to live good. Peter, I mean, Paul understood this in 2 Corinthians 1 in verses 8 through 11 where he talks about they even, they felt the sentence of death upon them. They were, they were up in the suffering and persecution as much as they could take. And God was teaching them to rely on him and not themselves. 
That's what God does. He refines so that we begin to walk in the way that he wants us to walk. And so we need to learn these kind of things. The glory of God's greatness can move us to endure anything and we need to be willing for the spread of his fame to take on any kind of persecution that might come our way. And so Peter is exhorting them. But Peter goes on and he wants to base this on a certain hope as well. And I'm just going to mention these quickly. The hope, what incentives do these believers have to endure such suffering? That's the third point in our bulletin. And I just want to give you four. Again, they're they're just packed in this passage. There's so much good truth. The first one is a good theology of God's purifying work. God is at work. There's a bigger picture to this. Again, you got that human level. This is bad stuff. We're up against it. Don't like it. Causes pain. Causes tears. Suffering. But there's a bigger picture. God is doing something. And you've got to have a good theology of God's purifying work. He is moving in ways that we can't even imagine. If you talk to those in the persecuted church world, they very rarely ask you to pray that God would remove their persecution. Their primary prayer is that God would make them continually faithful in following him because they understand God's purifying work in ways that we may not. Incentive number two, the promise of Christ's glory to be revealed in verse 13. The the whole idea of we rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That future day is the incentive. We're looking forward to that day. And that's an incentive. Rejoice, be glad. Your reward is great in heaven is what Matthew 5, 12 says. Your reward is great in heaven. That's an incentive. But there's a third incentive, the sustaining power of Jesus in the time of need. When that future reward seems so far away, what is the incentive? The incentive is in verse 14 that in that moment, at that time, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so as we walk into unknown, we walk faithfully, we're following the Lord and we step into that unknown knowing that something actually could happen to us, something that would be suffering for us. We walk into that. It's when we walk into that, at that moment is when we know what that looks like. Like Jesus told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. You will know in that moment that I'm there with you. There will be a boldness. There'll be a strength that we would not know otherwise. And then I think a fourth incentive is a healthy fear of the future for those who do not entrust themselves to God. The passage in Peter as well, the whole book, talks about those who disobey. If our future is one of glory, what is their future? It's one of destruction. It's one of pain. It's eternal suffering. And that's an incentive. Oh, you're going through this now, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, it's momentary light affliction. It's nothing to be compared to that eternal glory. It's momentary and light But for those who do not obey, they've got an awful future in front of them. And so Peter is offering offering these exhortations. It's based on a certain hope, good theology, good end times, understanding. So how are we to respond to all of this? Number one, we are to be one with them. If one member suffers, we all suffer. And so not only are we looking at this passage today, we're looking at the persecuted church worldwide 
And that's what's going on on the patio. That's what's going to be happening tonight. Hebrews 13.3 puts it this way. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And so I wear this bracelet right here. It says one with them. And on the reverse side, it reminds me Hebrews 13.3. We've got some bracelets out, out there today that you may buy. I am in. And it talks about these believers who are being persecuted for the faith, but also it's saying we're with them. We are in it with them. And so that's one thing that we can do is we are to be one with them. We can pray, we can give, we can write letters of encouragement. You can do it today. You can come to the patio, you can come again tonight. You can get so much information about how you can come alongside of your brothers and sisters in Christ today. And so as we think about what Peter's doing in this letter, because of faithful living, the church around the world right now is suffering persecution. We can exhort them and remind them of their certain hope. You can write them letters right out of this passage to encourage them. You can give them God's word, which many of them are not even able to carry around. And you can exhort them with these truths that maybe they've never heard before because of the countries in which they live. So that's one way we can be involved in their lives. We think about a second way is we need to honestly reflect on our own lives in the lack of persecution. Again, getting back to the title of the sermon. Let's reflect in our own lives, the lack of persecution. Let's think about the pattern that Peter has set up for us here. Faithful living leads to suffering persecution, requiring exhortation based on a certain hope. I think you can trace that throughout the Bible, and I think you can trace that throughout the New Testament. This is a pattern. Jesus said very clearly that we will experience persecution. So maybe for our purposes today, we need to back up to the faithful living part and ask ourselves some serious questions about how we're living, why we're not experiencing persecution. We might need to ask questions like, are you boldly living for Jesus? If the course of this world is opposed to Christ, then why might we fit so well into the course of this world? Why is it that we might be going with the flow of this world without any interruption, without experience, any persecution? Maybe this is a passage that because we don't necessarily participate in persecution, we aren't experiencing persecution, then maybe we need to step back and ask ourselves why. Now, I'm not saying no one here experiences persecution. We, we've had people in our body who have even lost jobs because of their faith in Christ. And so it does happen, but why might it not be happening? Voice of the Martyrs has this goal right here, that we will willingly sacrifice everything we have in this world in order to fulfill God's calling to obey and serve him. That's really what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's really what it means to treasure him above all things. Everything is about him and about his return. Everything focuses on him. And so we go back to that statement I had up there earlier. Thinking about whether or not you would dare to die for Christ, would I be willing to die for him? Thinking about that question will help you to think about whether or not you will dare to live for Christ. And I wonder if we might need to focus more on that right there this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? And as your heads are bowed, 
I would like to ask you to take some time to be thinking about your present life. Do you dare to live for Christ? Not so much do you dare to die for Christ, but do you dare to live for Christ? We believe here at Grace that when God's word is preached, the Holy Spirit moves. We believe here at Grace that when God's word is preached, it's alive and powerful. And so this is a time where we don't want to lose the moment. And so in whatever ways God is speaking to you now, I encourage you to listen. If it has anything to do with being one with them, we've got the patio out there where you can be involved right away. But take a moment and ask God what it is that he would want you to be and do in light of this passage. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, all around this room. Lord, would you awaken our hearts to treasure you above everything? Around this room, would you help us each one to take up our cross and follow you? Lord, in any ways that the hands have slipped off the plows in this room, would you move in people's hearts? They'd put their hands on that plow and remain focused. Lord, that we would set our eyes on Jesus, author and finisher of our hope. We would not shrink back. Lord, give us courage. Lord, help us to be obedient to your wonderful call on our life.